0: The city of Mesa, Arizona is a suburb in the Phoenix area where I live. Perhaps the most notable features of Mesa are its sizable Mormon population, next to Salt Lake City, the largest in the world, and a huge Mormon temple located on exquisitely kept grounds in the center of the city. Even though I admired the landscaping and architecture from a distance, I had never been interested enough in the temple to go inside until one day when I read a newspaper article describing a special inner sector of Mormon temples where no one is allowed except faithful members of the church. Even potential converts must not see it. However, there is one exception to this rule. For a few days after a temple has been built, non-members can tour the entire structure, including the restricted section. The newspaper story went on to report that the Mesa temple had recently undergone major renovations, and that the changes had been so great that it had been classified as new by church leaders. That meant that, for the next few days only, non-Mormon visitors could see the temple area that was traditionally banned to them. I immediately decided to take a tour, and I called a Mormon friend to see if he wanted to join me. The conversation that followed taught me something valuable about the next major principle of influence I want to cover the principle of scarcity hello Jack. this is bob Listen, i just saw an article in the paper that says the entire mormon temple in mesa is going to be open to visitors for the next couple of days so i'm going to go over and take a tour today you want to come along
1: no i think i'll pass i've got some errands i really should get to but i'm curious why do you want to go over there
0: you have some interest in the mormon religion that i don't know about no i can't say that i do What is it then? Some general interest in church architecture? No, it's just that the special intersection of the temple will be open to non-Mormons for a few days and then it'll be closed to me forever.
1: Well, what is it exactly that you expect to see there? I've been in it myself and there's nothing more spectacular or stirring than you'd see in any number of churches and cathedrals in town.
0: You you know, you may be right, Jack. Uh, There's nothing in particular that I want to see. I guess I just want to be able to be there just to be able to stand on that spot sometime in the next couple of days because if I don't now, I'll never be able to. When I hung up the phone, I realized that I had admitted something very instructive to Jack and to myself, and that was how powerful an effect the principle of scarcity had on me. This place that on its own merits held no special appeal for me became much more attractive merely because it was rapidly becoming less available. A look at the relevant research shows that I'm far from alone in this respect. Just about everyone finds opportunities that are rare or dwindling in their availability more attractive simply because of their scarcity. One study done in North Carolina demonstrated how this principle works in a consumer preference test of chocolate chip cookies. Participants in the study were given a jar of chocolate chip cookies to taste and rate. For some of them, there were 10 cookies in the jar. For others, the jar contained only two cookies. Despite the fact that all the cookies had come from the same Nabisco box, the people who got only two cookies rated them as more desirable to eat in the future, more attractive as a consumer item, and able to command a higher price in the store than did people who got 10 of those same identical cookies. A report of the cookie study appeared in a prominent psychology journal in 1975. Remember at the start of this program, I mentioned how very often important results like this one sit in the scientific journals unused for years. Well, I have a hunch that the Coca-Cola company wished that it had paid attention to these findings when 10 years after they appeared, it began what Time Magazine calls the marketing fiasco of the decade. On April 23, 1985, the company decided to pull their traditional formula for Coke off the market and replace it with new Coke. I'm sure you remember what happened that day. It was the day that the syrup hit the fan. In the words of one news report, quote, the Coca-Cola company failed to foresee the sheer frustration and fury its action would create. From Bangor to Burbank, from Detroit to Dallas, tens of thousands of Coke lovers rose up as one to revile the taste of the new Coke and demand their old Coke back. The best example is a man who lived in Seattle named uh, Gay Mullins, retired real estate uh, investor, who became so incensed that his beloved soft drink was going to be pulled off the market, that he formed an organization called the Old Cola Drinkers of America, who filed a class action suit against the Coca-Cola company to make the recipe public who issued banners and buttons and t-shirts, sent them out by the thousand free of charge to anybody who wanted to be in their organization, had a hotline for disgruntled callers and for clinically depressed callers so that they could be counseled out of their post-Coke depression, a different kind of Coke. It did not matter that in two blind taste tests, Mr. Mullins chose the new Coke over the old. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The thing that Mr. Mullins liked more was less valuable to him than the thing he was being denied. It's worth noting that even after giving in to customer demands and bringing the old Coke back to the shelves, company officials were stung and somewhat bewildered by what had hit them. As Donald Keogh, then president of the company, said, It's a wonderful American mystery, a lovely American enigma, and you can't measure it any more than you can measure love, pride, or patriotism. Here's where I disagree with Mr. Keogh. First of all, it's no mystery. Not if you understand the psychology of the scarcity principle. Especially when a product is as wrapped up in a person's history and traditions as Coca-Cola has always been in this country, Of course that person is going to want it more as it becomes less available. Second, this urge is something that can be measured. In fact, I happen to think that the Coca-Cola company had measured it in their own market research prior to making their infamous decision to change. But they didn't see it there because they weren't looking for it the way a detective of influence would. The people in the Coca-Cola company are no penny-pinchers when it comes to market research. They have been willing to spend millions of dollars to assure that they have analyzed the market correctly for a new product. And in their decision to switch to the new Coke, they were no different. From 1981 to 1984, they very carefully tested the new and old formulas in taste tests involving nearly 200,000 people in 25 cities. What they found in their blind taste tests was a clear preference, 55% to 45%, for the new coke over the old. Also, some of the tests were not conducted with unmarked samples. In those tests, the participants were told which was the old and which was the new coke beforehand. Under those conditions, the preference for the new coke increased by an additional 6%. Now, you might say, That's strange. How does that fit with the fact that people expressed a decided preference for the old coke when the company finally introduced the new coke? The only way it fits is by applying the principle of scarcity to the puzzle. During the taste tests, it was the new coke that was unavailable to people for purchase, and so when they knew which sample was which, they showed an especially strong preference for what they couldn't otherwise have. But later, When the company replaced the traditional recipe with the new one, now it was the old Coke that people couldn't have, and it became the favorite. My point is that the 6% increase in preference for the new Coke was right there in the company's research when they looked at the difference between blind taste test results and identified taste test results. But they interpreted it wrong. They said to themselves, oh, good. This means that when people know that they're getting something new, their desire for it will shoot up. But in fact, what the 6% increase really meant was that when people know what they can't have, their desire for it will shoot up. One lesson that we can learn from this is that people are more motivated by the thought of losing something than they are by the thought of gaining something. This means that when you're trying to get someone interested in what you have to offer, It's not enough to talk about the benefits of your product or idea. You must also highlight its unique features. Those advantages that the other person will stand to lose by not choosing your product or idea. So, let's say you're in sales and you've got a customer who just can't seem to make up his mind on whether to buy from your company. A customer who keeps procrastinating on the decision. Before your next call on this individual, you need to stop and think not just about what he can gain from going with your product, but what he stands to lose by failing to do so. Those unique features or that unique combination of features, service, and terms that he can't get elsewhere. Do you recall the cookie experiment I talked about a few minutes ago? There was one other finding in that study that I haven't told you about yet. Remember how some participants got 10 cookies and others got only two cookies? Well some of those people who got only two cookies to taste and rate were first given 10 cookies by the experimenter. He then came back to them and said, oh, sorry, I can't give you those 10 cookies after all. There's been such a demand for cookies by the other participants in the study that I can only give you two of them. And with that, he replaced the jar of 10 cookies with a jar of just two. Well. When these people rated the cookies, they evaluated them as more attractive than any other participants did in the entire experiment. What this finding tells us is there is a factor that intensifies the impact of scarcity on the judgments that people make. Yes, people value scarce resources more than abundant ones, but this is especially true when they are in competition with others for those scarce resources. Competition, rivalry for scarce items and opportunities can make people lose all sense of perspective and go slightly local. What about you? Have you ever found yourself raising the ante and raising the ante against some rival for a business opportunity until you emerged the winner? And then the dust settled and you realized that in the end you hadn't won a good business opportunity, all you had won was a battle. How do you learn to avoid that kind of poor judgment? The big problem is, just at the time when you want to be rational and logical, the head-to-head competition you're in is making your emotions rise, your focus narrow, and your blood come up. Logic goes right out the window. Here's what I'd suggest to handle the problem. Instead of letting this sweep of emotion lead you into making poor decisions, use it to lead you to good ones. Whenever you feel yourself experiencing a rush of competitive emotion in a situation involving a scarce resource or opportunity, use that feeling as a signal to stop short. Use it as a kind of yellow flag, cautioning you to slow down, to calm yourself, so that you can bring rationality and logic back into the picture. Then, assess the situation based on the genuine merits of the opportunity before you. This way, you'll win more than a contested deal, you'll win what you were looking for all along, the right deal. Let's say you're in a situation in which a particular customer is playing you and a competitor against one another. He keeps asking for concession after concession from each of you to stay in the running for his contract, and he makes a point of informing each of you every time the other makes a better offer. As soon as you feel yourself getting frustrated and agitated, It's time to use those feelings to step back away from the situation rather than to plunge into it with an increased fury and desire to beat your rival. Step back and calculate whether winning in this instance would amount to losing and whether the rational thing would be to walk away, leaving what's now become a bad business deal to your opponent. If, with a now clear head, you can see that the benefits of the business aren't worth the costs, and if you do walk away, you will have one. After all, leaving the unfavorable deals to your competitors is one of the surest ways to triumph over them. We've all been in situations where we're holding off making a decision. We just hadn't quite made the commitment yet. The following scene points out just how powerful a motivator the principle of scarcity can be in these situations.
1: Hello?
2: Hello, Tom. This is Ann Anderson down at Smith Realty.
1: Oh, hi, Ann. Uh, you got another house to show me, huh?
2: No, actually, I'm calling with some information about that place I showed you last week over on Broadway that you like so much.
1: Oh, yeah, I loved it. Uh, everything but the price. Uh, Did the owners come down?
2: Unfortunately, no.
1: Hmm.
2: And I know that the last time we talked about it, you wanted to hold off on making a decision because you weren't sure you wanted to go that high.
1: Yeah, I just don't know if I want to be saddled with the mortgage payments that would involve. I was hoping they'd come down. No luck, huh?
2: No, but I just got some new information that I figured you'd want to know.
1: Oh, what's that?
2: Well, my manager, Trish, is familiar with the house? And she says that yesterday it was shown to a doctor who's interested enough to want to see it again this weekend, this time with his wife. Trish thinks that if the wife likes it, they're going to make an offer at very close to the asking price.
1: What does that mean for me?
2: Well, it's completely up to you, of course, but we've still got three days before the weekend. And I think that if you can get an offer to the owners that's $8,000 below their price, they'll take it.
1: (sighs) That's still more than I wanted to pay, Ann. Mm, But I really do like the house. Uh, You say this couple is a doctor and his wife, huh? They've probably got all the money in the world to spend. I don't know. What do you think?
2: Well, I can't tell you what to do. That's got to be your decision. But I do know this. Time may well be running out. Uh, What do you want me to say to the owners?
0: Mm, Okay, let's go for it. Make them the offer. As I'm sure you recognize, in that little scene, Anne, the real estate agent, employed the combination of scarcity plus rivalry to motivate her client, Tom, to make a decision. And there's no question that she was effective with it. But in addition to her effectiveness, let's talk about the ethics of what she did. What do you think? Did she behave properly or improperly from an ethical standpoint? For me, that depends on whether she acted like a smuggler or a sleuth. If the information she transmitted to Tom was true, there is no ethical impropriety at all in the fact that she acted like a detective to uncover the real facts and bring them to Tom's attention. As long as competition for this scarce resource was a genuine part of the situation, I don't think she can be faulted for alerting Tom to it. In fact, if she hadn't pointed it out, she would have been a bungler, doing herself and her company and Tom a disservice in the process. If I really loved the house I had seen, but was waiting to see if the owners would cut their price before deciding on it, I would be outraged at my real estate agent if she didn't tell me what Ann told Tom. So from my point of view anyway, Ann is only to be commended for her sleuth-like approach to the situation. The situation becomes quite different, however, if the information was untrue, if Ann manufactured the story of the doctor and his wife to spook Tom into making a decision to buy the house. Under those circumstances, with a powerful principle of influence smuggled into a setting where it doesn't naturally exist, I have to see Anne's ethics in the matter as shameful. And, as is the case with all smugglers tactics that are effective in the short run, I think Anne is going to pay a steep price in the long run. That's going to be true in two ways, financially and personally. Let's take the financial side first. Before long, Anne and the realty company that trained her, or just allowed her to fool her clients in this way, will become identified with the trickery. It could happen in a hundred ways, all made possible by the fact that the world is a very small place. Here's an example. Suppose the night after making his offer on the house, Tom goes to a party thrown by one of his friends from work. Still wrapped up in thinking about the new house, he mentions his offer and the circumstances surrounding it to a group of people gathered around the buffet table.
1: So I made the offer, and uh, I'm just waiting to see if the owners will go for it. Hmm. My real estate agent told me to put a short fuse on my offer so that it's only good until Saturday. Now that's when this other couple is scheduled to see the place, and well, we want the owners to have to decide before then.
2: Hey, let me ask you something, Tom. Yeah. Your agent wouldn't happen to be Ann Anderson, would it? Oh, as a matter of fact, it is. How'd you know? Oh, because we used her, too, when we moved to town last year. Uh-huh. And the story she gave you sounds just like the one she gave us. We wound up not taking the bait because a friend of my husband had had a problem with another agent from the realty company she works for. um, Smith Realty, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, we eventually decided to go with another realtor. But let me ask you one more thing. Yeah. This guy who likes the house and is bringing his wife to see it on Saturday, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't happen to be a doctor, would he?
1: As a matter of fact, wait a minute. You you mean... I'm gonna check this out. If she's lied to me, I'm withdrawing my offer.
2: But you can't do that, Tom. Not without losing your earnest money deposit. How much did you put down? Five hundred bucks,
1: but I don't care. If she's been putting one over on me, there's no way I'm gonna let her get a commission on this deal. No way at all. And I'm going to make her sorry she ever tried this scam. I'm going to scream to the Better Business Bureau. I'm going to yell at her boss. I'm going to holler to the state licensing board. And I'm going to be on the phone to Claire Thomas. Claire Thomas? Down at work?
2: Yeah. Well, why would you call her?
1: Because she's the one who handles all of our personnel transfers and relocations. Yeah. A lot of times when new employees come in from out of town... They'll ask Claire for advice on realty companies to help them find a house. Mm. I'll make sure no one coming into our company ever hears the name of Ann Anderson or Smith Realty again. Not
0: in a favorable way, anyhow. I'll tell you what. I'd hate to be in Ann's smuggler's shoes after Tom checks and discovers that she was trying to influence him with a fabricated competitor. He's mad enough to do everything in his power to damage the financial prospects and reputation of Anne and the company she works for, now and into the future. It's the smuggler's legacy, short-term monetary gain, long-term monetary loss. But remember that when we began talking about the negative consequences of the smuggler's approach to influence, we said that it led to more than just long-run financial damage. We said that it also led to long-run personal damage. I'm referring to a person's self-respect. Let's stay with Anne, the real estate agent, for a while, and let's suppose for a moment that she was never caught at her scarcity plus rivalry trick, that neither Tom nor any other of her clients ever associated her with this deceptive practice. Under those circumstances, wouldn't it seem that the smuggler's route would have paid off to Anne, as well as to the company that employed her? Not if we recognize the damage to her self-image that her dishonesty would most likely cause. To the degree that she regularly engaged in a planned program of deceit with her prospects, her view of herself would have to change. Maybe without even being aware of it, she'd have to question her morality, her integrity, her honor, assigning herself less of each. As I said before, these psychological costs should not be minimized. We can all attest to the importance of feeling good about ourselves. I also mentioned before that there's another financial price to pay as well, and I'm going to repeat it here because it's so important. This price is paid not only by Anne, but by any company that trained or allowed her to work as a smuggler in its behalf. A job that eats at an individual's self-respect because it involves the deceptive manipulation and exploitation of others would not be the sort of job most people would look forward to going to in the morning. In fact, in the face of that sort of job, most people would want to come in late, they'd want to leave early, they'd call in sick at the slightest opportunity, eventually they'd just quit. Those are hardly the motivations on which productive, profitable, and stable careers or companies are built. I know that was true in the case of my brother Richard. He had a remarkably successful used car sales business, although it wasn't exactly what you'd call a traditional used car business. Here's what happened. My brother worked his way through school selling used cars, not from a dealership, not from a lot. He would buy a couple of cars that were advertised in the newspaper one weekend, He'd add nothing but soap and water and sell them for a two to three hundred dollar profit apiece the following weekend. How did he get people to spend two or three hundred dollars more per car than he spent? He had to know about the principle of scarcity. Let's talk about scarcity. First of all, he knew how to buy a car at the bottom of its blue book value so that he could legitimately advertise it for two to three hundred dollars above what he paid for it, and it would still be within the Blue Book range. He was a good judge of cars, he knew how to do that. Secondly, he knew how to write an ad so that people would call and inquire about the car at that price. But thirdly, he knew how to make those cars seem like scarce resources that his prospects were interested in and competing against let's say four people called on Sunday morning, here's what he would do, let's say the first person called, he would say, sure, come on over, Uh, when would be convenient, 11 o'clock, that's fine. When the second person called, he'd schedule that person for 11 o'clock, and the third person and the fourth person, and all four people were scheduled at 11 o'clock. And it happened every time. The first person would come, usually a few minutes early, drive up and start doing normal car buying behavior. Kicking the tires, slamming the doors, maybe pointing out a rust spot or two, maybe even negotiating on the price for a bit, until the second driver pulled up and the psychology of that situation changed abruptly. This wasn't an ordinary car anymore. To be decided upon at leisure, this was a scarce resource that these people were in competition against one another for. And the first person would often say to the second one, now wait a minute, I was here first, I should get to decide if I want... If he didn't, my brother would do it for him. He'd say to the second person, now, excuse me, sir, but this gentleman was here before you, if he decides to buy my car at my price, I will have to sell it to him. However, if he doesn't want my car at my price, Then I'd be glad to show it to you. In the meantime, would you mind standing on the other side of the driveway? Banished to the peripheries, this guy. He's over here now. And you can see him. You can see it. He's leaning. You know, he's poised. He's waiting. This, the first guy for his part, now here's this lurking newcomer waiting for him to decide. And now the third and the fourth buyers drive up. Bang! Something happens. The first guy buys the car on the spot and never dreams to negotiate on the price. Because there are three people waiting for that car at that price right there. Or he can't take this stacked up competition and he just abruptly leaves the scene at which point the second guy pounces because there are two lurking newcomers waiting for him to decide. My brother would always sell that cop. Now, let's talk about Richard's ethics in all of this. The situation's a little more gray than that of Ann, the real estate agent, because after all, he never actually lied to anyone about the amount of demand there was for what he had to offer. Still, when we think about it, we can see that he was acting like a smuggler importing the impression that there was a level of demand for his car that simply wasn't the case. He had potential buyers saying to themselves, good lord, people are flocking here to get this car at this price. If there are four people who are here this moment, think of all the people in the city who must be interested in this deal. What they didn't know was that there were only four people in the city. Who were interested in that deal, but Richard had arranged for them to get there at the same time. As far as I know, my brother was never caught at his little tactic. But one day, he just stopped using it. I remember asking him about it years later, and he said that, yeah, he was making good money with it, but that he just didn't like fooling people all the time. He didn't like the way it made him feel about himself and he didn't like the way it made his friends think about him. Although they never said so, Richard thought that they were a little standoffish to him while he was making money this way, maybe figuring that if he was willing to trick other people all the time, he'd be willing to trick them someday, too. And so he just stopped. The monetary benefits simply weren't worth the personal costs. As I think about the situation these days, it occurs to me that being a smuggler of influence wasn't my brother's only option back then. He could have been a sleuth of influence instead. After all, there were four people interested enough in the car at his price to want to see it. There's no reason why he should be required to bungle away that influential piece of information. He could have used that genuine fact in a way that was both effective and completely ethical. Here's what he could have done when those four interested parties called on Sunday morning. When the first prospect called, Richard could have said, Yes, that car is still available. When would you like to see it? 11 o'clock? Fine. See you then. And when the second prospect called, he could have said, Sure, come over at your convenience, but I should tell you that there's someone already scheduled at 11. And when the third buyer called, he could be told about the 11 o'clock and the 10.30 appointments, and when the fourth buyer called, he could be honestly informed about the other three possible buyers who had scheduled themselves to see the car. Now, if I were that fourth buyer, I'd want to know about the true amount of demand for that car at that price. And yes, I'd probably be favorably influenced toward the car after finding out that there were four of us who were interested in it. But I would have been influenced by information that was honestly and accurately presented to me about the nature of the situation. That's valuable information, much too valuable to the seller and to the buyer to be bungled away. In general, not bungling away the power of the scarcity principle means emphasizing the unique features of our products and ideas. It's not enough to simply talk in terms of benefits, we also need to inform people accurately of what they will not be able to have if they fail to move in our suggested direction. The newest research suggests that this will be effective because people are much more motivated by the thought of losing something than by the thought of gaining that same thing. And if they genuinely stand to lose that thing because of the presence of competitors, we would be jerks not to make them aware of that possibility. So far, we've talked about scarcity only in terms of commodities, cookies, Coca-Cola, and cars. But the latest psychological research has uncovered another commodity that offers an advantage for those of us working in the business world. It turns out that the scarcity principle also applies to information. Information that is exclusive, that is not readily or widely available, is more persuasive than the same information that everyone has access to. If you think that you're the only one who's getting a particular communication, you listen more intently, you absorb it more fully, you value it more deeply, and it changes your mind to a greater extent. Let's take as an example a study that was done by a student of mine who was a successful businessman who had returned to school to get his degree in marketing. He wanted to do an experiment using his own sales staff and customers as the participants so he came into my office and we talked about the principle of scarcity and how research now indicated that exclusive information and scarce commodities can cause people to want to say yes more quickly and more frequently. It happened that he was the owner of a business that imported beef from South America and Australia, which he then sold to large supermarket chains here in the United States by the train car load. After we talked for a while, we decided that he would do the following experiment. He went to his salespeople, who usually contacted their customers by phone, and he had them divide their list of customers randomly into three groups. They were to call the first set of customers and try to sell them on an allotment of beef by using their normal sales approach, which went something like, we have a certain allotment of beef available, it is of such and such a price, it is of such and such quality, and we can deliver by such and such a date. We think this is a good time to buy. How many carloads would you be interested in? That was the standard condition, the way the request was usually made. For a second set of buyers, however, the salespeople were told to add the information that, because of certain unexpected weather conditions in Australia, there would be a shortage of Australian beef in the near future. Then these individuals were asked to buy the product. The impact difference between these two forms of requests was pretty dramatic. Using just the standard request, the number of carloads purchased was 10. But in the second condition, when the request included scarcity of the product, the number of carloads bought more than doubled to 24. But there was one more condition in this experiment. In this one, the salespeople were told to say not only that there was an impending shortage of Australian beef, but that This information came from the company's exclusive sources in the Australian National Weather Service. No one else had this information. This was the scarcity double whammy. Not only was the beef scarce, but the information that the beef was scarce was scarce. What happened to buying patterns under those conditions? six times as much beef as normal was purchased. 61 carloads compared to only 10 when using the standard approach. Now the beauty of this procedure was that it was performed in a completely ethical way. There really was an impending shortage of beef from Australia and that information really did come from the company's exclusive contacts down there. So everyone, company and customer alike, benefited from the use of the technique. Afterwards, my student remarked to me that these circumstances, exclusive information about product scarcity, had existed several times before in the history of his company. But because he hadn't known at the time what the research on the scarcity principle said, he hadn't used those circumstances to his advantage. In fact, he hadn't used them at all. Here were a couple of things that were already right there in the situation, waiting for him to use, and he had been just bungling them away. But not anymore. Now, whenever he has a hot piece of news about upcoming scarcity, he takes the detective's route to influence by quickly making that information prominent and available to customers. And you can bet that he doesn't divide his customers into three groups anymore. He gives them all the most effective type of request. And by doing that, he generates a win-win arrangement each time, because not only does he sell a lot of beef, but his customers get an advantage over their competitors by buying it before the price goes up. Let's make sure, then, that we use exclusivity of information only like a sleuth would. When there's new information in a system to support our ideas or products, let's uncover it and use it immediately before it gets widely known. We'll be much more persuasive with it that way. And when you've got some exclusive knowledge to share with a person you hope to influence with it, don't boot away the chance by failing to mention its exclusive nature.